Welcome to the podcast of Calvary Baptist Church. We are delighted you have chosen to listen in today. It's our hope the message of Jesus will continue to spread and bear fruit, both in your life and the world around us. For more digital content, feel free to check us out on the web at calvarybcmoultrie.com. And now for today's message. Psalm 119, that's where we will start today. Um, For some of you guys who know, uh, maybe you're familiar with the Psalms, that is the longest Psalm in the Bible. Don't worry, I'm not teaching all of it. I'm actually only teaching a particular amount of verses today. So we're going to be in verse 129 through 136. But before we start, I've ever, I kind of wondered, I was thinking about the Psalm this week. Uh, For those of you who know, we were out on our uh, trip uh, this past week. Uh, our church, we do a thing every year where we go together as a church. Uh, and what we do is we just spend time with one another. Uh, we hear from the Word of God. Um, and we have a ton of fun. We do lots of swimming, all that kind of stuff up in a place up in uh, North Georgia. And I got to reflect a lot just being in nature and being in God's creation this week. Um, it's just a, a beautiful reminder. And one of the things that I remembered as I was up there, is the inherent beauty of the creation. I mean, have you ever noticed that? Like, whether it is something like, I mean, it's hot as sweat outside in South Georgia right now. Popsicles on a summer day. That's stinking cool. Laughter around a board game. Like, there, there is an inherent beauty in life. The joy of giving birth to a child. Maybe the joy for some of you who have been married of walking down the aisle. There is an inherent beauty to life. And it's so interesting that we get to a psalm like today. And you know what? One of the things we discovered is that is not by mistake, my friend. No, 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 no. That we come to Psalm 119, and one of the things you might not know about Psalm 119 is it is an alphabet psalm. What in the world does that mean? Well, you see how it's broken up into sections? Just look down. Every, like, couple verses or something like that, like every eight verses, it breaks into a new section. Every single line in one of those sections begins with one letter of an alphabet. A, 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 A. Next section, B, 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 B. Next section, C, 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 C. All the way down through the entire psalm. Now, that might shock some of you, because when we tend to think of the Lord, you know, commands of God, you know, obedience, we never typically think in terms of beauty. After all, couldn't have God just have put a detailed account of everything I did? All right, um, in 1680 B.C., I did blank. Good. In 1400 B.C., I did blank. Good. I sent Jesus Christ, 33. Good. He didn't do that. But he gave us something beautiful. That the Psalms were a reminder continually that God is just not a God who is interested necessarily just in in bland, oh, no, no, no. No, he is a beautiful God who reveals himself in beautiful ways. So we get to hear from a little poetry today. So let's begin. We'll kick it off. Again, I'll go as long as I can. Maybe that's a little while. Maybe that's the whole thing. 
We're going to start in, again, verse uh, chapter, chapter 119, verse 129. This is what it says. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression, that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant, and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. It's interesting. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed, um, um, some people go to school um, to learn in particular fields. So let's say, I know some of you guys are in med school right now. Um, that is the craziest thing I've ever heard of in my life. Like eight years of having your face in a book. That's insane. Um Awesome, awesome. Some of you guys went to be computer programmers. Some of you guys went to be EMTs. But then you have me. Um, I actually didn't go to do anything like that. I just went to learn the Bible, not because I planned on being up here one day and teaching, just because I loved it. So I've done a lot of years of school with the Bible. And one of the things that I've noticed in particular in reading over and over again, and some of you guys probably have noticed this as well, is that sometimes the Bible does things that you really don't expect it to do. It says some things, or maybe in certain ways, that you know what, you would have been like, you know what, I never would have actually thought it would have said that. It has a way of catching you off guard. It did it right from the start whenever I was reading this. Look at verse 129 again. Your testimonies are blank. Let's just blank. Therefore, my soul keeps them. What would you expect that blank to be? What would you expect that blank to be? One of the things I think we tend to think is we tend to take a look at the Bible and we tend to think, okay, you know what? In, in our culture, we're like, okay, the Bible's right. Therefore, um, I'm supposed to do it, right? I'm supposed to do stuff. Your testimonies are right, therefore my soul keeps them. You know what? I'm kind of obligated to do it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is that what it says? Look at verse 120 again. Your testimonies are, oh, wonderful. Wonderful? I was reading this this week, and one of the profound things that came to my mind is how much I think every single person in this room we are naturally geared toward obeying God out of duty and shame. Duty and shame. Now, you might be like, David, what are you talking about? Maybe this would be the best uh, illustration for it. So um, I don't like going to the dentist. Um, the prospect of getting cavities in my teeth, you know what? I don't really care for that. Um, but there's one particular time I always, that every single time that I go to the dentist, there's one particular session 
of the whole dental visit that I particularly hate. And that's whenever they do the flossing and stuff like that, you know. And then they ask you the question, do you floss? And then you try to lie and you're like, yeah, but you don't really. And they know because like my teeth, they like, they, they bleed whenever you don't floss them. So it's like, yeah, dead giveaway. And then what they do is they tend to say like, you know what? You really should floss. You know what? If you don't have floss, you're going to get gingivitis. You're going to be an 80 year old with no teeth. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. And what it is, is it's almost like this, this, this like guilt. And I walk out every time being like, you know what? I'm going to floss. <sighs> and every single time, because, because I walk out of there, I'm like ashamed that I don't floss. And in some ways, one of the things I, I think it's very easy for the Christian to actually have the same view of godliness and the commands of God. That you walk in and hear Maybe perhaps every Sunday. And maybe you even want to get like your, 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 you want to be told how you're wrong and every, you, you, you want to be told all those things so that you can feel shameful and be like, you know what? Yeah, I, I will, I, I, I'll do better next time. I, I, I know it, I, it is my duty to love God. I will do better next time. After all, this is why you hear people, after all, in our culture say things like what? Well, I know I'm not supposed to be doing this, but why? Why do they say something like that? Because it's up, because God's commands are obligation, duty. Or I I know I wasn't raised like that, but why do we say that? Why do we hear that? Why? Because God's commands in our mind, obligation, duty, guilt, shame. Or, I'll do better next time, God. Obligation, duty, shame. Do you see those things? That the fallen human being, this is, this is, this is all of us. All of us who were dead in Adam. When Adam sinned, he imparted, we, we got his guilt. That all of us tend to view God How? In terms of those two things, our relationship to God, shamefulness and duty. And you know, there's an attractive quality to this because you have done this. You and I have done this. You're like, I'll do better next time. But here's the only problem. Duty and shame will only ever have very, very, very short-term results in your life. You've noticed this, right? You've noticed this. You've swore to yourself, I ain't never going to do blank again. Why? Because you're ashamed of it. And what happens? You have four, five months maybe of success, but what happens? It doesn't change. But notice the other ways that the psalmist refers to God's word. Look at verse 131. I open my mouth and pant. Why? Because I long for your commandments. That is not the language of duty and shame. That is the language of love and affection, of desire. That every other world religion 
relies on duty and shame so that you will correct your behavior. And guys, this is where the gospel speaks to us most because what are the what are two particular things that Jesus Christ actually took on the cross? He fulfilled every duty and obligation that we actually owed to God. So therefore, when God looks at us, what does he see? He sees Jesus Christ. Completely unashamed of us. Why? Because he sees Jesus Christ. But not only took that, what does he do? He takes our shame. He's crucified naked for a reason. Why? Because in that moment, what he was doing is he was taking the shame of me, sinner, of you, sinner. Why? So that you would no longer, and I would no longer, play the duty-shame game. Because what's going on? Through the duty shame game, you would never even say this. We would never think this. But what you're doing is you are trying to claw your way back to God. The only problem is that you can't. That you and I can't. That part of our walk with Jesus Christ is not saying, God, I promise I'll do better next time. It's throwing our hands up in the air and said, Lord, you know I never could do better. But there was one who came for me who did do better, who was righteous, who was just. And now I don't relate to you out of guilt, shame. What do I relate to you out of? I relate to you out of love, affection, and desire. I mean, just think about it. This is why, like, here we, we hold, like, marriage is, like, a big deal. Why, why do we do that? Because what that is, in some ways... Some people have called it a, 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 a parable of God to fallen human beings. What is it? It's a place where God actually joins two humans together. For what point? To say, no matter what, I will actually be here. No matter what you do, I will actually be here. This will be an environment for your growth and for your safety where you can actually do things wrong and mess up and I will be there for you regardless. And that is what Jesus Christ has done with us. Before we could obey, before we could do anything, he promises himself to us. And in the process, what happens is we are freed from duty and shame game. And now what do we do? We relate to God out of desire that, my friend, maybe you're trying to fight sin. You've been radically unsuccessful. Why? Because you are trying to fight it with duty and shame. That particular sins cannot disappear from duty and shame. They must be loved out. Your love for something else must grow beyond your love for that thing. That sin can never be self-controlled out of your life. It can only be loved and captivated out by someone who is more beautiful and great than your sin, and that is Jesus Christ himself. But he's got some, like, rock star news. I love this. Look at verse... Verse 130, it's right in the middle of those two sections. I think these sections, like, join around this verse. 
Like it kind of like hugs the, hugs the verse. So verse 129, testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. Verse 131, I open my mouth. I pant. I long for your commandments. What comes in the middle? The unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Now, I don't know what you first thought of when you read that. When I tend to think of simple, what I, t- what I tend to do is I tend to, tend to think of things like tiny houses. Like simple people. Someone who is, um, you know what, he doesn't have or she doesn't have a big budget. She just lives a simple life. Okay, And that could be one of the meanings of the word. I totally get that. It's not necessarily a bad thing. But... Throughout the Bible, and particularly in Psalms and Proverbs, this is not exactly a positive term. I'll give you an example. Proverbs 14, 15. It says this, the simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thoughts to his step. The simple, is he's just gullible as all get out. He will believe anything you tell him. That that is a simple-minded man. Or how about this one, Proverbs 1, 32. For the simple are killed by their turning away. And the complacency of fools destroys them. For the simple are killed by their their turning away and the complacency of fools destroys them. What in the world, who, who are the simple? Is this a good thing or a bad thing? In the Bible, here's a, a pretty maybe good description. A simple man. A simple woman. It's not a compliment. It's a person who kind of tries to live their life on the fence like that. He or she might might give a, a head nod to God's instruction. But for the most part, he or she lives his life on their own terms. Because of this, they live a pretty unstable life precisely because they actually reject meditating on the word of the Lord. Here's what this means. This this means that a person is usually subject to their own whims, fancies, feelings at all times. So they're constantly in threat of being moved to and fro. Why? Because they are controlled by those things. Because of this, maybe you're in here today and you're like, David, that actually is probably what my, my what my life sounds like. Before I came to this was me before I came to know Christ. This was me right here. Because of this, the simple man, the simple woman, actually, they typically have this decisions that cripple or kill them slowly. And he or she usually has two responses to this. Self-condemnation, they blame themselves. Or condemnation of others, they blame someone else. They blame their spouse. They blame their boss. They blame the people back in elementary school who made fun of them. But what is Psalm 130? So these are typically people that we would think like, this is, this is not going to go well for them. What does it say in verse 130 about the simple? The unfolding of your word, what does it say? Gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. The friend, maybe you walked in here today and for the first time in your life you realized, oh my gosh, I'm a simple man, I'm a simple woman, and that is not a compliment. What if I told you today that there is a God who makes the simple wise? 
that the way that you were living your life, the self-destructive way you were living your life, living at the whims of your own self, that there is a God who could save you from that. And believe it or not, a God who could make you wise. And you might be like, Dave, that sounds kind of old-fashioned. Why? Like, wise? Like, I got to have, like, a, a gray beard, which I'm slowly getting, by the way. I looked in the mirror. It was crazy. But wisdom is this. What do you think it would be like to be able to walk in a way that generally kind of doesn't panic but knows kind of what to do in each situation? I'm not saying perfectly, No. But what would it be like to be that kind of person? And that is what the Lord does. This is what made Christianity so revolutionary because who were the first people that were typically saved when we see in the book of Acts? Maybe you, some of you aren't familiar with, with the Bible. That's okay. Here's, I'll, here, I'll tell you. Here's who he saves. He saves people who are completely unwise. Substance abusers. Adulterers. Prostitutes. People who all society looked down on. And it turned the world upside down. Why? Because suddenly, in time, what did the Lord do? He made those that the world thought nothing of, and he turned them into wise people. The friend, maybe you're here today and your life is wrecked beyond repair, or so you think. I've got good news for you. That we see a love of the, of, of the word of God can make the simple wise. Can make the simple wise. That if you forsake your path of folly that you're on, that he can make the simple wise. Let's look at verse 132. So he just confesses This whole past section, past three verses, his love for the word, his love for the word. The unfolding of your word gives light. Mm, Yes, give me more word. Lord, I need to know what you said. I want to know you. Why? Because he knows the God behind the word. And he will know the Lord more by knowing his word more. So he continues now. Interestingly enough, he kind of changes in the next four verses. It forms a little section where he asks the Lord four separate things. What does he ask him? Let's look at 132. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady your steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression, that I might keep your precepts. Make your fence, make your face shine upon your servant, and teach me your statutes. It's interesting. One of the things that we see throughout the Bible constantly is that the God, that God calls us to do things as human beings, but also lest we think that we can merely do that and achieve somehow godliness, we are quickly reminded that we are woefully inadequate to do this. 
Notice, he's just confessed the word of the Lord. Who knows the word of the Lord better than this guy? I mean, he wrote like 175 verses on it. And still, what is his cry? Did you notice? Verse 135, make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. That my friend, maybe you feel like a spiritual failure this morning. That the cry of the psalmist, make that your cry this morning. Lord, make me to know your word. Teach me your statutes, Lord, please. But he asked the Lord these four things. We're only going to be able to cover two of them. But fortunately enough, it's almost like he asks the same thing twice. Look at verse 132 and 135. They form like a little bracket around. 132 says this, turn to me and be gracious to me. As is your way with those who love your name. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. Number one, what does he ask for? He asks for the Lord's favor. Now, that's kind of weird because, I mean, most likely some of you guys have probably tuned into TV stations where there's, like, preachers in, like, suits with, like, $5,000 shoes. And they're telling you, dude, you want the Lord's favor, you give a little something, something to me. So, obviously, we know. That, that, that's not the issue. That's not the case. That's not the Lord's favor. But I think there's still a part of us that naturally thinks the Lord's favor is success. It's success maybe in growing my business. It's success in relationships. It, it, it is success. And don't get me wrong. It very well could be. But the Lord could actually curse through blessing a business too. And he can certainly bless a business. He can do both of those. Now, what is this psalmist after? This psalmist, what is he? He wants the favor of the Lord, knowing that no matter what happens in this particular person's life, whether his oppressors strike him or not, what? That he knows that he has a God who is there. That he seeks above all, not riches, not wealth, not importance at his job, not love. What is he? He wants the favor of Yahweh. That's what he wants. But he asks for a second thing. They're in the middle. He says in verse 133, keep steady my steps according to your promise. And let no iniquity, get this, this is a weird, this is a weird phrase. And let no iniquity, what? Get dominion? What in the world is that? That's a big word for like rule, like a king. Bang. Let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. What does he ask for here? It's interesting. He asked for the Lord's favor first, but secondly, he asked for the Lord's deliverance. He asks for the Lord's deliverance. 
Now that's interesting because if you looked very closely, there's almost two aspects of this deliverance. Sure, there is an outward form in verse 134. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. This guy's life is hard. This guy's life is hard because of particular people in his life. So there is an outward form of that, 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 that we do pray, that we long for deliverance from. But man, just when we think that we're getting it, there's that monkey wrench of verse 133. What does it say? Keep steady my steps according to your promise. Let no iniquity get dominion over me. That there is an outward form of that we need to be delivered from. Stuff out here. But there is very, very real an inward deliverance that you need deliverance from as well. That you and I are a threat to ourselves. That constantly need the Lord to deliver us from us. I remember um, as a kid, my mom uh, would take us to um, Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey. I don't know if anybody know what that is. It's a humongous circus. And I remember uh, it was at the Orlando Arena, which I'm pretty sure was like my first temple. Like, like Like my first religion was the Orlando Magic. Many of you guys have heard me say that before. I like burned incense to Shaquille O'Neal and Penny Hardaway. Like I loved basketball. I worshiped at that temple. That was my temple, baby. And I remember it was, we, we would go to, we would go to the circus and they had everything there. They had the, the elephants and the tigers and the lions. They had the, the, the trapeze artists, but they would also have this uh, tightrope walker. And you know it gets real whenever they, like, pull the net out. So literally this guy's like, 150 feet in the air. If he falls, like, it's over. Like, this guy, he's walking just on a tightrope. Everybody watching him, all the pressure on goes... All the way through, everybody stands, claps, all that. But that's actually what I thought of. The first thing that came to mind when I read verse 133. Why? He says, keep steady my steps according to your promise. That most of us, I tend to think, left to ourselves, we think the path is wide. And that we'll self-destruct like it, it, like if we get like way over there. But the word of God comes to us and says, no, 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 no. You are more like a, on a tightrope than you think. That if you and I try to live our lives apart from God's word, God's people, if we try to do that, that you are like a trapeze or like the little uh, tightrope guy thinking that you have like 10 feet on each side. The only problem is when you step off, you will plummet. You and I will plummet. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. That's not a mistake. One of the things that we see 
throughout the Bible is that you and I will worship something. Maybe you walked in here today thinking that you were pretty irreligious. You didn't think that you really worshipped God or not. I can tell you, you actually do. Your heart will run after something. My heart will run after something. And here's the thing. If it is not Yahweh, it is somebody else and it is something else. But here's the only problem. Whenever we chase something else, notice how he says, get dominion over you. The problem is that the thing you chase will become the thing that rules you. It will rule you. It will rule you mercilessly. But we can serve the Lord. And I will tell you this, my friend. He is a much better master. He is a much better master than what you are running after. That he is the kind of master who will lay his life down for you. Who will be tender with you. Who will walk with you through tragedy. It's almost an invitation to see life as beautifully dangerous. But the bad news today is that you and I, my friend, are not capable to live our lives on our own understanding. But the good news is this, turning from your old way of life and embracing him, embracing his word. I think we said it this past week that if you had to maybe pick one word to define like the Christian life, the Christian experience probably would be desperate. That we are desperate people. Not fooling ourselves up for a minute. He ends in one thirty six, he says, My eyes shed streams of tears. Because people do not keep your law. Why is he weeping? This guy, how, how do you think this psalm would end? You would think it may end with like rejoicing or something like this. And what does it end with? It ends with weeping. Does he give the reason why he is weeping? No, he does not. Is he weeping because the Lord's fame is being trying to be stolen from from human beings who keep rebelling against him. Is that why? Perhaps. Do his eyes shed streams of tears because he looks around at people and though they could have life, they're actually choosing to eat dirt instead. Perhaps. But whatever it is, notice how emotionally engaged this man is. That the word of the Lord is not some intellectual exercise. His whole heart, soul, mind, and strength is involved. He sees his testimonies. As wonderful, the unfolding of his words is giving life. He pants for the word of God. 
it, it's interesting. We, we live in an area of the world. It, it's very unique. Um, if you get to travel a lot, um, you'll, you'll see this. Every, every culture has its strong points and its weak points. We have our strong points and we have our weak points just like everybody else. Friday nights, football games, strong point. But every culture also rebels against the Lord in its own little ways as well. That the spirituality of our city is probably somewhere in between the spirituality that you see maybe in Sister Act and Talladega Nights, somewhere in between there. That there's a temptation perhaps to think that I will come to church and do my thing. But then I really kind of live my life on my own terms. And I, you know what? And perhaps one of the reasons that you, maybe one of the reasons that you don't, that you're not meditating now on the word of God is that you don't know how to do it. My friend, this is one of the big reasons we really, really, really push being together with the body of Christ is because learning really truly does happen in community. Like that's why we try to make a big deal of church membership. That's why we do things like Wednesday nights here to grow in our understanding of the word. That's also why we do things like we're doing right now on Sunday nights. We don't have it this Sunday night. But we do this. Why? Because we know learning happens in community. But maybe, maybe just maybe, one of the reasons you, you don't meditate is because honestly, at the end of the day, that you think that you are wise enough to make it through this life. And my friend, if that is you this morning, I don't stand up here and be like, slap, slap, slap. No. I'm saying, repent and believe in the one who can make you wise. You can do a lot of other things besides meditate on the word. You can have a successful business. You can travel the world. But guess what? T-shirts don't do you no good at the end of your life. And in fact, t-shirts don't even do you good now. But there is one who, who calls. So how do we, as a church, how do we respond to this? This is an invitation to seek the, the word of the Lord daily. And not just like reading, 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 reading. No, no, no. There's a kind of reading that can probably not do you a lot of good. Like, you know, the kind of reading whenever, like, you were told to, like, read a book in high school and you were like, <sighs> like, that reading probably won't do you any good. But a reflective reading would be like, hmm, how is this actually, what is this revealing about me? What is this revealing about God? Meditating and praying through it. It's an invitation to sit under God's word in community. It's also an invitation To not see God in obedience to him in the framework of duty and shame. But to see it as it really is. That to please Yahweh is awesome. That to walk with him is awesome. That my prayer constantly as i as i pray for you guys through the week and as the heart of a pastor 
is a group of people who can meditate on the word and deeply, deeply love it out of all the recesses of their heart. If that's there, I don't worry a whole lot about anything else. I do. But if that's there, I'm like, oh, that's awesome. So may we be a desperate people. Knowing that the Lord has seen us. He has seen that we have lived on our own wisdom and yet he still offers us repent, believe in the beauty of the gospel. That is part as our of our response. Is to sing Come thou found of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Even using words like, Lord, make your, make, make yourself a shackle and bind my heart to you. That we long to be a people who love the word of God. Why? Because it's some kind of obligation? No. But because we deeply love the one who his word teaches us about. So guys, Let me pray, and we'll respond through singing. Thanks for listening in to today's message. For more information about our church, feel free to visit us at calvarybcmoultrie.com. We hope you will join us again next time. Until then, grace and peace.